0: So Habakkuk chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked. And judgment doth never go forth, for the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs, They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. So far, let us pray. O Lord, as we turn to these ancient words spoken so many years ago, in a time in which the people of Judah were under severe wrath and judgment. Lord, we pray that we would see the parallels, that we would think deeply about these things. Pray for young people, pray for elderly, pray for those of us who are in the midst of our human life, as it were. Lord, that all of us would behold this morning the word as it is proclaimed. That we would behold Christ and know him and love him and that he would be altogether precious to us. In his name I pray, amen. So this morning I'm going to be dealing with verses 6 and 7 as was mentioned in the liturgy. So um, verses 6 and 7, for lo I raise up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. I have three points this morning, and they are raw justice, robbed inheritance, and rugged rule. Raw justice, robbed inheritance, and rugged rule. First of all, raw justice. You see here, as we saw last time in verse 5, God is calling the people of Judah to look. He's calling Habakkuk to look and the few righteous people that may still be among the people of Judah. And now in verse 6, he gets clear as to who's speaking, because we didn't see in verse 5 yet the author here. It says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. So he first of all, remember, he says, Stop looking among yourselves. Look beyond your borders. Look really far beyond your borders, because the Chaldeans were being raised up. Next time I'm going to plumb a little bit into the depths of who are these Chaldeans. This time we'll just remember that they are the Babylonian armies that had just defeated the enemy at Carchemish, right? Assyria and Egypt had fallen. But the reality is we have to see in this text, it's not so much the Chaldeans that are at issue. It is God that is speaking. And he says, I raise them up. It is a reality as... Almost it is that God is establishing that the power to dominate is coming from him, not the Chaldean army, which looks so t- powerful and so fierce. This is not just permissive language. A lot of people say, well, God just allowed them to do this. No, God says, I am raising them up. I am bringing them into the land. This is active causal involvement not merely description as some versions may have it almost as well a deed is being done over there no god says i am doing a deed it's very strong in the hebrew and so we see as we saw before that in this answer god is answering habakkuk's charge that god is inactive that god is not present that god has not seen the plight of his people and seen the wickedness. No, God is stirring up major activity. The unbelievable events that erupted in the world in the past week. We mentioned Israel. We look at the wars. We look at the barbaric slaughter of Christians in Nigeria. and We hardly hear about it. But all these things are happening, and our sovereign God is inscrutably at work in all of these things. We've got to remember that the the ascension of the Babylonian army was completely unexpected. Everybody thought the Assyrian Empire would last for eons, and it didn't. Within 20 years, Babylon came. Before that, it was a non-entity. And now under the will of providence, God brings them up. And what's interesting about the Babylonian Empire is it came fast, and it would go away overnight when Cyrus takes Babylonian army. You see how God is at work? He he raises up empires and he brings them down, and he doesn't react like we do, right? We're reactionary by nature. After all, we try to plan ahead, we we take foresight, and we, we think, okay, this makes the most sense. But God never reacts. He's always orchestrating everything according to his perfect will. And because his will is immutable and it transcends everything, Everything that is unfolding, though it be the plans of man, are ultimately his sovereign plans being executed. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, it will help you as you work through the struggles, the challenges, the fears that might be in your life right now. Because if you think they're not in a sovereign's hands, you're going to be afraid. But Jesus tells us, be not afraid. Every hair on your head is numbered. Now we've got to be careful in this text because the prophet is not just merely giving a historical prediction. Look, the Babylonians are coming. No, the Lord, through Habakkuk, is making a theological point in the prediction. Because what's not at question in Habakkuk, as he raises the charge, is, God, are you really sovereign? He doesn't ask that question. No, the question that Habakkuk has raised is, God, you are sovereign. Why aren't you just? Where's the justice here? Why aren't you vindicating your name? The whole thing here is about justice. Why, sovereign God, are you doing this? Now, you may believe in a sovereign God, and you know he's unquestionably in charge of every drop of, Of rain that falls on this planet. He's in charge of every little bug that crawls on the earth and of sovereign big things and small things. You may not doubt that, but perhaps, perhaps what you doubt is the justice of God. Like Habakkuk, you wonder, why, God? Why did you bring this into my life? Surely, God, this makes no sense. Surely, God, this isn't right. Habakkuk will have his jaw dropped. His measures of justice will be overwhelmed as God unpacks the vastness and perfection of true justice, which is His justice, which is so inscrutable that to think that all of the events that are happening in the world are God who will never, ever minimize, marginalize, or compromise His justice. That's an amazing thing to think about. It is shocking that God would wield the ruthless Chaldean military machine and that at the same time it will be a display of sovereignty and justice. Two plateaus, the human plateau where the Chaldeans would exercise incredible injustice and God's plateau where justice is perfectly executed. You see, our concepts of justice are often mangled by feelings particularly of entitlement. And that comes from a personal sense of I'm a pretty good person. I'm really not that bad. And how often haven't we said I don't deserve this. And You may not say this but perhaps you've thought it. God crossed the line. There's no way this can be right. Have you inwardly challenged the very God you confess by affirming his sovereignty, by challenging his justice at the same time? You see, in Habakkuk and in this unleashing of Babylonian injustice at the human plane, at the other plane, we are confronted with ourselves. How holy is the God you worship. How pure are the wells of righteousness which belong to the God of Scripture? Those are questions we need to wrestle with. And how quickly we cast dirt in our human, finite, sinful selves on the holiness of God when we question his ways, when we belittle the arm of justice, when it finally executes judgment. Now think about this. The scope of the judgment that God would bring on Judah, its sheer magnitude, it's huge what happened to the land, is but a faint echo of how holy God really is. It is but an earthly display of something so much bigger in the justice of God. And it points us to the incredible... Wrath of God that came on the Son of God when he bore the wrath of sin upon himself. You see, it wasn't just the nails that went through his hands and the beating, the flogging, and the crown of thorns. It was the suffering he endured as God Almighty placed the sin of humans on the Son. And we can't even begin to describe what it means that the son bore the wrath, that he drunk the dregs of the wrath of God on our behalf. And Babylon's judgment, the armies on Israel, are but a faint echo of that. You see, the Babylonian invasion, as bad as it was, was a tempered wrath. It's like taking hot water, putting a little bit of cool water in it yet. Because it wasn't final wrath. It's restrained wrath. It was scaled to physical proportions only. But my Lord's, our Lord's suffering for my deserved wrath, for our deserved judgment, was complete justice executed. Years ago, I heard a sermon, and I think the premise is right. Hell is an echo of the glorious holiness of God. At Calvary, Christ suffered it all, once for all, fully, finally completed, because you cannot add to what the Son bore for sin. Is it any wonder that he who knew no sin and bore that sin on us in the garden of Gethsemane, prayed a prayer that is so shocking and yet so real, when he said, Oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew where he was going. The disciples didn't get it. He knew. Nevertheless, Jesus says, in complete subjection to his father. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. What mercy is bound up in the cross of Christ. What incredible suffering he bore for you and for me, brothers and sisters. And it is but faintly seen in the Babylonian judgment on sinful Judah. Now look at the phrase in the text here in verse 6. When it says, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. In the Hebrew, the words bitter and hasty are rhythmic. They rhyme. In order for one to be bitter, what do you have to be? You have to be provoked. Something has to provoke you to anger, which eventually leads to bitterness. But it answers and says, they're bitter and they're hasty. Hasty. They're rash. They're impulsive. So think about this, Babylon was not provoked by Judah, not at all, but she would act as if she was provoked, because when someone is bitter, they will do the most ruthless things, but Babylon had nothing really to do with Judah. She would be rash instead, she would be violent, she would be irrational in what she does. Now there's an amazing lesson in this because God, as we've mentioned, always judges perfectly. God is never hasty. In fact, the Bible says he's long-suffering, he forbears, he's patient. But when he finally brings judgment upon Judah, he does so in a way that actually exposes something in Babylon and it exposes something in Judah. Because Judah was filled with violence. We saw that earlier in the text, verse 2. And Judah is filled with irrationality. And now in judgment she would reap the same. Perhaps we must see the judgment of God on our nation with the irrationality we see in so many places in this country who can make sense of what's happening to the sanctity of life when we have doctors being paid to take away the lives of the most vulnerable. That is completely irrational. Or perhaps, how do we understand the mutilation of bodies to satisfy sexual ideologies? That is completely irrational. What logic is there to hiring policies that are driven by woke ideologies It's irrational. And perhaps God is bringing upon Canada a judgment of irrationality, just like he did with irrational Babylon on Judah. And how opposite again. Babylon and Judah are to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ was not hasty. The Lord Jesus Christ was not Irrational. The Bible says of him, a bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. And then it says these words that we so often don't think about in this marvelous prophecy. And then it says this, he shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Everything our Lord does is 100% pure. But it is pure and tender, Christ has the spirit of mercy. He heals the broken. His rule, opposite of Babylon, opposite of Judah, is characterized with incredible patience and yet uncompromising, unswerving justice. The Lord has delegated authority on this earth to magistrates, to parents, and to other spheres. But what we learn from our Lord opposite Babylon is that there is in the Lord a desire in executing justice to bring healing. Those of you who are in authority, whatever position the Lord has placed you in, it should not be the pain of acid on a wound that you pour out but it should be as iodine which promotes the healing fathers men leaders, future leaders of home and society here's a question are you am I cultivating bitter and hasty judgment or Christ like tenderness At the same time, tethered to uncompromising judgment unto truth? Are you holding both as our Lord is tender to the smoking flax and yet unswervingly pure in his judgment? Are we doing that? This brings me to my second point robbed inheritance. Robbed inheritance. Notice Habakkuk says, which shall march through the breadth of the land. That word breadth is only used six times in the entire corpus of the Old Testament. Now, everywhere else, it refers to pleasant, delightful, and safe places. Think about that. Delightful, pleasant, and safe places. Here the Chaldeans march through that. It's turned on its head. The breadth of the land, it says, would be overrun. Were there any places left that were pleasant for Jews to be? Was there anywhere where they could hide? Again, judgment on Judah parallels something. It's paralleling here in a faint echo, final judgment. Have you considered the breadth of judgment day? Literally in the Hebrew here, it actually reads not the breadth of the land. It reads the breadths plural of the land. Babylon would overwhelm multiple targets here. Dwellings, captives, kings, rulers, nations would be conquered in this judgment. Farmers were minding their own business, and suddenly they would be overrun. And on Judgment Day, there will be people that are just minding their own business, and the Lord will return in judgment. Fenced cities would crumble. Even then, on that day, you cannot wall up behind the fences. Of your own righteousness. It will not work on that day. Even Jerusalem. The city of God. The city of the temple. When Babylon swept in. Would fall. Surely on that day. You cannot plead the fact. That you went to church. 52 Sundays out of the year. Young people. Youth often leads To a feeling of invulnerability. Nothing's gonna touch me. Surely my health is strong. Surely my skills will keep me secure. Surely I'm a nice person. I won't see trouble. Mark well what you trust, mark well how vulnerable. You really are. This morning I was reading Gernal, Christian in complete armor, and he talks about life. And he says, it is on lease with you. You do not own it, and you do not know when the master who owns your life might take it. There's another angle to this breadth of the land. It doesn't just talk about the breadth of final judgment on everybody. For although Babylon was the rod of God's judgment on his rebellious covenant people, note that word, on his rebellious covenant people, the same phrase, marching over the breadth of the land, gets used in the New Testament differently as armies again will march on the covenant people turn with me please to Revelation chapter 20 I'll start at verse 7 and when the thousand years are expired Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea and here it is and they went up on the breadth of of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them now i'm not going to get into eschatology here and the different views on what the thousand year reign is that that's not what i'm after verse 9 at the end of time the target again is the camp of god's people the city he loves in Habakkuk's day, Babylon was unstoppable as she bore down on Jerusalem. The enemies of God have always sought to wipe out the people of God. That is on the agenda. That is their mission. And here we see the final assault of the wicked world. They will pass over the breadth of the land once again, accumulating as the sand of the sea All the ungodly will come and amass themselves against the church. Against the beloved, the saints it says. Now the armies of hell may come swarming about to destroy the church. But unlike that temporal judgment on Judah, rebellious Judah, sinful Judah. Judah that was not the Judah of faith. The last Judah. The last Israel, the people of God, those who are born again, will be kept from this judgment by God himself. Because you know what's interesting in this entire thing? When Babylon came, we know what they did to Judah because the Bible tells us. Nebuchadnezzar, it says in 2 Kings 25, 9, it says did this. And catch this carefully, see if you catch it. And he burnt the house of the Lord And the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great man's house, burnt he with fire. Do you catch the redemptive reversal here? In the final assault, the enemies of God will be destroyed with fire. And there are piles of allusions here. Later on, you can look at Revelation 11 and see how this fire will ultimately be executed by the word that comes out. There's a beauty in this, in this redemptive reversal. Oh, to know our precious Lord today who keeps us in pleasant places. What mercy it is that our sovereign Lord, the covenant God, defends his people always that victory belongs to the Lord. The only true and everlasting hope and security we have, whereas Babylon marched through the breadths of the land and there was no security, in Christ we are completely secure. We opened up this morning with Psalm 125, 1 and 2. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so who? The Lord is round about his people from henceforth, even forever. You see, if we cast ourselves upon the sure refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the breadth of God's judgment will not fall on us. Looking to Christ, our great shepherd, our great deliverer. We join those of faith from all generations who, the book of Hebrews says this, declare plainly that they seek a country, an eternal one. Although unbelieving Judah fell, the new covenant people, and everybody bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ and kept secure under his blood, will be protected. Neither sin, our own sins, nor death, That will one day come, nor hell will ever march through the land of the eternal Canaan. It will never touch it, it will never come close. Resting in Christ, the Bible says we receive a kingdom that cannot be moved. What a hope! What a hope. Now, back to our text. As it says, to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. You see, usually in military campaigns, it was punitive, which means punishment, or it was economic, but it was usually not occupational. It was either to punish or to plunder. Usually they would subjugate the people so they could get tribute money and leave them in their lands. Just let them work and we'll take a good stiff tax. Or we'll just slaughter them all because we are having some sort of reprisal. But it's interesting here and and many commentators noted this. This judgment that Babylon has of Judah is different. It's not regular. It's not normal. The real emphasis in the Hebrew here falls on the word To possess. Now, what does that trigger in your mind? To possess. When you know your Bible, when you know your Old Testament, when you know who this people are, it's Judah, it's Israel, the people of God. That same word, Yaresh, is very frequently used in Israel in its conquest of the promised land. In fact, 71 times in Deuteronomy alone, That word is used. Here's an example. It says, That ye may go in and possess, there's our word, the land which the Lord God of your fathers gave you. You see, this is stock covenant language of the takeover of Canaan from the covenant Lord. And again, this is a covenant reversal. Israel possessed a land they had not built. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 6. God says this, Way back he says, "And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which He sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities." You know what he says next? He says, "Which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou." Biggest not vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. You see the emphasis is on all of the accumulated possessions of the Canaanites being dispossessed and Israel just moves in and now the identical language is being used as covenant reversal as to what Babylon will do to Israel. You see, because remember how God says to Abraham, he says, your people will be sojourners in a land for 400 years. And then what does he say? For the iniquity of the Amalekites is not yet full. Remember that? Eventually, God leads Israel into that promised land. And as Canaan had filled its iniquity to the full, God is clear. Now Israel had filled her iniquity to the full. Ezekiel, one of the sister prophets, as it were, of Habakkuk, says this. Ezekiel 9.9. The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. And then he uses the same language. And the land is full of blood and the city full of perverseness. You see the same language being used here. Now that raises a question. Does this mean that the victory that the Babylonians would have over Israel, the possession they would now take and usurp, means that they get all the blessings of Israel? Because, hey, they got the land. It may seem so. For a season, it seems so. But it's not the case. But it does raise a question. Sometimes it seems as if the world, the wicked... Flourish on the inheritance of the church. Think about that. As Babylon, we live in a nation that feeds off of the remnants of Christian principles and blessings. We've got to be careful here. The dwelling places, to draw the parallel here, of the church are not its buildings. Every time I go back to the Netherlands, I'm always shocked at how many churches that were once places of worship have now been turned into a restaurant or into an apartment complex. On the one hand, we think tragic. On the other hand, they're buildings. They're not the church. They will never possess the true dwelling place of the church. They will parasitically live off of the blessings of church in culture. The true inheritance of the church is one that we did not build. Because the Bible is clear. The inheritance of the church is the inheritance that belongs to Christ. The new covenant community is blessed with him. The Bible says in Revelation 21.7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. you see judah's failures led to her being dispossessed of her earthly inheritance that is a shadow that is a type, but the lion again from the tribe of Judah secured an in- eternal inheritance that no king, no authority, no usurper will ever touch the Bible says in hebrews one two of Christ it says. Whom he hath appointed as heir of all things. Nothing can take that away. Nothing will diminish that. Because you know why? This is anchored in the unchangeable, immutable word of God. And so we can have hope. We can have assurance that when we are in Christ, we have an eternal inheritance. Perhaps you're fearful of the events unfolding in the world even as we speak. There are armies mobilizing to invade lands and to bring people into eternity. And you wonder what's going to happen to our nation. Is this going to end up in global conflict? All of this really reminds us, doesn't it, that here we have no lasting city. United to Christ, we need not fear bitter and hasty attacks... But we can calmly rest in the triumph of our Lord. Do not cling to your bank account. Do not cling to your family. Do not cling to your health. Do not cling to our attendance here. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he will never be removed from the church. Now lastly, verse 7. Third point. Rugged rule. Rugged rule. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. The word terrible is actually only used in the Hebrew three times. Here in Habakkuk and twice in Song of Solomon. Where in Song of Solomon, it compares the beauty of the bride to an awe-inspiring army with banners. It says that the beauty, the staggering beauty of the bride, which I believe typifies the church as Christ makes her righteous... Is seen in the staggering, awe-inspiring approach of an army in ancient days that would ride with its banners before the vast armies. Now, the approach of the Chaldeans is nothing less than sheerly majestic, is what it says. It is awe-inspiring, but it is linked with the word dreadful. Dreadful. Often this word is actually used for the fear of the Lord because the Bible says we ought to be To dread him, we ought to fear him. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. But here it is linked with the dread of the army that God has raised up. And so putting the two words together, squishing them together as it were, you get dread inspiring. The very people who had been told to fear the Lord we'll now find out, and we have to remember this, that when one does not fear God, they will slavishly fear and dread the enemies of God's people. Who do you fear most in your life? Pause and think about that. Who do I fear most in my life? Have you considered that the fear of the Lord is the only fear that leads to life? Have you considered that? The fear of the Lord is the only fear that leads to life. Look at the text. that says, Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. It is no throwaway that he uses the word judgment here, mishpat. Mishpat, we saw in an earlier sermon, is often linked with Torah. The Torah and the mishpat, the law and the judgments that proceed from the law. But here, the play is happening on that same word, because if you look back at verse 4, that same word gets used twice. Therefore the law, the Torah, is slacked, and mishpat, judgment, doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong, mishpat, judgment, proceedeth. It's linked together indubitably. Where Habakkuk had bemoaned the fact that God's law was not rightly upheld, God's covenant standard, the Torah, was tossed aside and judgment was slacked and and there was corruption among the judges. There is in this text, in this little phrase, their judgment and their dignity shall proceed from themselves, is another covenant reversal as they had been dispossessed of their dwelling places, their land that they had not built. Now God says, you will also be dispossessed of your law because now their law their judgments will rule you reap what you sow God says the Babylonians when it says their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves basically that means they call their own shots they're a law to themselves sometimes invading armies will allow local magistrates to continue to judge as kind of vice regents under them to continue to be arbiters in the land? Not Babylon. Babylon wants to run the whole thing. Local magistrates are spurned. Chaldean authorities rule the roost. Now, linking that with the word dignity is really interesting. The word dignity, because not only their mishpat, their judgment, and their dignity, it says, shall proceed of themselves. Because dignity is a fairly rare word in the Bible. It means their exaltation. It means being raised up where God and God's law is not raised up, man will raise up himself, and he will become a law. You know what we call that? Autonomy. auto-nomos self-law. We live in a culture that is rife with autonomy. It is rooted in sin and rebellion. It is rooted right back to the garden. When the serpent said what? To Eve, take of the fruit. And ye, notice the plural, ye, y'all, shall be as what? What does he say? As gods. What are gods? Exalted dignified beings. That is the lie the devil puts in. And now the Babylonians typifying the armies of hell, dignify and exalt themselves. It is a curse to be ruled by those for whom good and evil are a matter of personal preference. Because what happens when personal preferences collide? What happens? You prefer this rule. I prefer this rule. Who runs the roost? Who wins? Might makes right. That's where we see tyranny. Autonomy leads to tyranny. Where the Torah and the Mishpat, the law and the judgments are slacked. Autonomy takes over and we get tyranny. That's how it works and it is a judgment of God when that happens. John Gill says of this verse, he says, These Babylonians will usurp power, and they will take upon them an authority over others of themselves, which all must submit unto. No mercy and pity, no goodness and humanity are to be expected from such lawless and imperious enemies. Look around in the world. Look at governments. Look at regimes. And you will see by what law they run, based on how they exercise their judgments. Now, perhaps... You shake your head at injustices. You look around and you can't believe people are doing certain things. And you're blown away with some of the incredible statements made on the news lately. You can't believe journalists are saying some things. About a week ago, I spoke with a young man who had some audacious statements to make. He couldn't believe things were happening the way they were. He was confident his ways were right. We chatted a bit and then I asked him, I said, by what standard? I said, I have a question before you go home. Where do you ground your morals? You know his answer? I've never thought about that before. He had never considered that he claimed autonomy and had dignified self. A culture that is overrun is one that no longer appeals to the law of God, the objective standard written in the word of God. Something happened around the 1700s. It's a movement, if you remember in social studies, it was called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was man and reason are the measure of all things and the Enlightenment culminated in a revolution. Which one was it? It was the French Revolution that galvanized the saying, the rule of reason. Man's reason is now law, and it has swept over the West. Perhaps you've heard someone argue, I have talked with so many people Very intelligent people that will say this. As long as I am not hurting someone else, it's okay. You heard that before? I hear that a lot. You know what they say? They say that, sorry. And here's the question to ask them. But who decides when it hurts someone? Because you still need an ultimate authority and so it's just pushing the ball down is there freedom when everybody is a law to himself it is a recipe for oppression the opposite all of all of this of babylonian anarchy and judgment is the law of our creator the law of god lived in the freedom of the gospel is the way to live James will call it the law of liberty. As believers, reconciled to God, freed from the shackles of sin and the weight of the law, bearing down on our brokenness, we are now living as forgiven people, that we can live according to God's law. How often haven't we seen young people who grow up in the church find it boring, find it a waste of time, can't wait to get away from the shackles of church, the perceived shackles, something that binds you, something that holds you back, restrains you from freedom, true freedom. And so people, when they're 18, they run away, they, they, they buy their truck, they don't go to church anymore. Who needs this stuff? It has held me back for 18 years. You seen that? We see that quite often, don't we? And they think they can free themselves of these shackles. And you know what happens when they do that? They only enslave themselves by this perceived freedom to porn. They enslave themselves to new addictions. They are now in bondage to man-pleasing. They are in bondage to keeping up with the Joneses. There's no freedom in that. You sow the wind. You reap the whirlwind. Don't be surprised that those who despise the right way are then treated as if there's no right. Do you think out there in the world, free from the shackles of the law, as it were, that there's freedom? You'll be chasing other people's laws. So to sum all of this text up here, before we look at Babylon and think, oh, that was them, the Babylonians, I'd never be like that, can I gently ask all of us, to consider our own hearts here for a minute. There are times when we are, when I am, no different than the Babylonians. When you strained your finances in the last month to buy that thing, that toy, that item that you really wanted, whose law of prudence did you consult? When you were bitter towards a spouse or a child or a friend this week, whose law gave you that right? When you justified gossip, whose law was on top? When biblical counsel was rejected, did you place your feelings above God's law? Perhaps, just maybe, perhaps, the Babylonian ways have more sway within the covenant community than we think. Which brings us, after self reflection, the need to reflect on Christ. Because, as we sang, when we've hopelessly lost our way. When we start to perceive God's ways as shackles, it is a time to draw near to him in repentance and to look to him who never lost the way. What mercy there is in the Lord Jesus Christ, our great king. There's no greater king than the Lord Jesus Christ because the Bible says he always upholds justice and righteousness, think of Jesus in his life the Christ which means the anointed one the king fulfilled the law to perfection Peter says who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth in his death he bore the curse for lawbreakers like you and me The Bible will then say that all who are found by the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, it says, there is now therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The law, the guilt of the law has been completely wiped in Jesus Christ for the sinner who calls upon him. And in his call, this same Messiah, this same ruler, commissions, not compromise standards, Not low standards for the church. Oh no, perfect standards. Everything our king calls you and me to is with perfect warrant. John says this then, and this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment that undoes the gossip, that undoes the bitterness. That is a completely different life. It is a life of freedom found and secured in precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that in his rule, the Lord Jesus Christ shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. What he says. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. You link that to Revelation. Out of his sword. Mouth comes a two-edged sword. So look, dear people. Look today at the awe-inspiring banner of the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Christ today. He is perfect righteousness as opposed to Babylonian righteousness. And he is leading us to an eternal inheritance that cannot be shaken. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd, that great savior and deliverer. And we thank you that anybody here who looks to him can be saved. Oh Lord, what a mercy, what a gospel, what a hope. In Jesus' name.